Hello, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and each show I bring to you an interesting and provocative scholar to discuss topics in social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you enjoy what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex. I'm Chris Kaufman, and today I'm joined by Professor of Philosophy David Schmitz, and we are discussing his new book, Living Together, Inventing Moral Science. David, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Chris. So you frame this book with the question, is moral philosophy more foundational than political philosophy? In the context of that question, what is the difference between moral and political philosophy, and how might one be more fundamental than the other? Well, let's say that philosophy started around 2,500 years or so ago with, uh, with Plato's question, how should I live? What Plato wanted was uh, an answer that had no contingencies, no possibility of error, a timeless certainty that had nothing to do with circumstances. And then if you look at uh, political philosophy, well, one way to understand it anyway is to say it's all about circumstances. It's the, it's the study of the human condition, given that we are social and political and, uh, animals. So to live well, we have to cooperate. And to cooperate well, we have to be good at negotiating the terms of cooperation. That's not true of every social animal, but it's true of us who are political animals too. So if you start with our limits as social and political animals, then you've got a framework. You've got something you can work with uh, and you can you can ask what's conducive to beings with our nature making progress. So there's a lot of information there about what could count as an answer, a good answer to the question of how how uh, we should live. And without that information, uh, looking for the the thing that's timeless, you could spend thousands of years and still not have satisfying answers. So that's somewhat somewhat the difference uh, anyway. That's one way of looking at it. What would an answer to the moral philosophy question, how do I live, separate from how do I live with other people, what would an answer to that question even look like that wasn't taking into account the social fact of human existence? Well, if you were abstracting from our social nature and our political nature, you might say, well, here's what would be good for you. Uh, And you might come up with all kinds of truisms in a way, things that intuitively did have a tie to our morality, like you might say, to thine own self be true, that sort of thing, which to me is a profoundly important insight to what's in our interest. But then the point is, if you're if you start that way, then you come up with a theory about what's good for us, where the question of what if we were social animals, that's deferred until later. So if you defer it until later, then it seems like, okay, well, the ancient philosophers were there was a lot of egoism in their work, and then morality had to come in in order to correct the dictates of of the ego. Whereas if you start with our nature as social and political animals, you're not deferring the question of what's going to constrain our most rapacious interests. 
Instead, you start with the idea that to be a normal, healthy, social animal is from the start to be to have a fundamental interest in fitting in, being appreciated, being visible to the other people who compose the community that we want to be part of. This isn't a departure. This isn't this is morality now, but it isn't a departure from self-interest because you didn't start from self-interest as if the self were this completely unconnected thing that you had were, to be disciplined by becoming social. No, we're social from the start. Um, you mentioned a distinction. I, I think you're drawing a distinction between us being social animals and political animals. W what distinction do you have in mind between us being social and political? Do you have in mind oh, animals or types of being well, that might be social but not political? Well, sure. A social animal, uh, these are terms whose meaning depends on what it's most convenient for us to mean by them. So you know, most of the fundamental terms are are terms that people are only communicating effectively when they understand the context in which they're communicating. Like if you said, well, how do you know that Russia has invaded Ukraine? And you might say, well, I read a bunch of stuff in the newspaper and uh, this is this is what it adds up to. You can pretty much tell that's a war. That's an invasion. That's not that's not self-defense or anything like that. And then someone says, look, you can't even prove that you're awake. You certainly can't prove uh, that there's a war going on by saying you read about it in the newspapers. And you say, no, no, hang on. I don't know what you're talking about. Something in philosophy class. But the standard for justifying the claims that we make to each other, like, did you hear the news about the Ukraine today? Uh, I am obeying those standards by by saying, hey, I got it out of the New York Times. So it's all contextual. So with that as a preface, when I say we're social animals, I mean that our tool for cooperating is not that we can run down our prey and rip them apart with our talons, that kind of thing. It's not about gills. It's not about wings or anything like that. It's our ability to make deals. Our ability to cooperate is a distinctively human way of surviving and flourishing. Now, you say, hold on. Well, there's lots of social animals. I say, yeah, yeah. I didn't really mean, mean to put a lot of weight on the idea that humans are uniquely social, that wasn't the point. But if you want something that's a little more unique than the bare fact that we're social, we our socializing is mediated by language, by you know linguistic transfer of symbols and things. So we, so that's another sense you could say. Well, if you think of us as political animals, our essential character is not that we cooperate to flourish; it's that. We negotiate to cooperate. We have to negotiate terms of engagement uh, before we can successfully cooperate. So that means we have to be able to make make deals and and haggle and so and and then we as we're developing language, we have to develop concepts like Tuesday. So you say, is it okay if I pay you on Tuesday? I'm a little like I want I want all of what you're trying to sell, but I can't pay for all of it right now. Can I give you a down payment and pay the rest on Tuesday? You say, what on earth is Tuesday? And you say, uh, if you think of like, you know, the moon rises, the sun rises, and it does this a few times, and then it's Tuesday again. So, oh, I get it. Uh, yeah, you'll you'll be here at my shop. Right. So you you have you develop these incredibly elaborate ways of symbolizing 
meanings in in your environment uh and and because of that you can do things like no no i i promise you say how do i know i promise so well how do i know well look it's like reading the newspaper you kind of know it if you read it in the newspaper i'm saying if i promise that it'll happen on tuesday you know that it'll happen on tuesday right you you can you can bet your life that my word is good or you can bet your home if it's a case of a mortgage. You can bet it. You can bet your home that my word is good. And then after a while, you say things like, "Hey, if Dave said it, you can bank on it. You can literally bank on it." So that's how, from our social nature, that required uh, language in order to have sophisticated cooperation. That required col- politics in order to negotiate the sophisticated details of of transactions, of of reliances. And from that comes the idea of giving your word, having your word mean something, having promises mean something, uh, and then being able to say something really bad just happened here. A promise was broken. Uh, we need to say, is it the promisor's fault that she couldn't keep the promise? Or did the promisor blow off? The person to whom she was indebted and so you see now we're starting to think in moral terms but it all it all builds up it's a it's a process so you have a lot of critical things to say about ideal theory in this book for the audience can you say something about what is ideal theory how is it usually used and what do you see as its failings and what do you see as its promises well first of all i'd say there's such a thing as an ideal right, where you say, this is what I'd like to see happen. This is ideally what I'd like to see happen. And that's not ideal theory. That's an idea of ideals. An ideal theory is that there are ideals. And in particular, the historical discussion has been, there's such a thing as a peak, a pinnacle of perfect justice. And then ideal theory is the idea that our theorizing about justice has to start from the ideal, or it has to start from this metaphor of identifying the location of the peak, because it's like an archer. Like if you don't know what tar- where your target is, you're not likely to hit it. So that's the metaphor, and that's the intuition that the metaphor yanks on. And so otherwise, uh, ideal theorists would say, if you don't start with a conception of the ideal, then you won't know what to count as perfection, you won't even know what to count as progress because you won't know whether you're going toward the peak or away from it. So ideal theory does seem pretty intuitive in a way. And, you know, I like metaphors. I like metaphors as a way of communicating our language and our our sentences are deeply metaphorical. And uh, that's the way it is. Good communication is like that. But this is a metaphor for theorizing this idea of being an archer and aiming at a peak. And it's a badly misleading uh, metaphor. So I would say a less metaphorical and less misleading idea is if you want to solve a problem, start by identifying the problem. Don't say, no, I have to have a solution and then I'll figure out what the problem is. No, that's not the way to start. You start with the problem and then you sort through potential solutions. And you have a sense that a lot of ideal theorists 
don't start by getting an adequate handle on what the problem even is to begin with. And by the problem, I think we're talking about the problem of civilization, the problem of how we can get along together, that they start with trying to identify an ideal solution without even getting a good handle on what the problem is. Uh, sure. I um, mean, we we say that as if it's simple to get a handle on what the problem is, but that's not necessarily so. Uh, but but yeah, that's that's the idea. Like, uh, so I want to say, hey, forget the peak. Maybe there is one. Maybe there isn't. But if we start by making up something, then we're never going to know what's real. If everything that we're aiming at is tied to something that might not even be real, that might just be a made up daydream or something like that. But if you start from the bottom up and you say, well, what is the human condition all about? Well, it's about fundamental problem is we have an interest in surviving and we can't survive ex unless we work together. Like Robinson Crusoe has a very low life expectancy, like measured in hours, not even months. So to, to really flourish, we're going to have to cooperate. We're going to have to figure out how to ramp up each other's productivity. We're going to have to figure out how to specialize in things that make us more useful to other people. So that's the idea is we do that. And then I, you know, forgive me, I, I think there's a metaphor here that is not misleading and in fact is very illuminating, which is to say justice is traffic management. It's figuring out who's in the way, who needs to stop and let the other person have the right of way. Um, in fact, I mean, a lot of justice talk has always been something like that. Sometimes literally that's what it's about. Sometimes it's literally to say, your honor, neighbor stole my water. And neighbor says, it's not his water. It's the community's water or it's my water or something like that. Uh, right. And that's traffic management. The judge has to say, OK, somebody crossed the line. I have to figure out where the line is and I have to figure out who crossed it. So there's a fundamental idea there about what a court of justice is about, where it's not a matter of figuring out what other people's destination is. Like a judge says, OK, hang on, hang on, everybody take a breath. First of all, the fighting has to stop. You guys came to the right place, right? Rather than just, you know, swinging swords at each other, you came to me to see if I can come up with a peaceful resolution. Here it is. I've got something for you. And now you have to go forward and live your lives. You will go out, you will leave this room and you will say, well, I got into a fight and I didn't even win the fight. So that's too bad. But at least I didn't get myself killed. And not only did I not get myself killed, but I also I'm walking out of here like the verdict wasn't that I'm a second class citizen. The verdict was just, you know, the judge heard me out, listened, didn't ignore me, didn't laugh and and told me, yeah, that's not the way cases with standing water get resolved. Um, and I told him, no, I think the here I, there's a precedent. We, we have you know, we've always had this law. And the judge says. Uh, yeah, but as the other guy's lawyer explained, that's a case involving running water and uh, standing water is a whole different issue for and for very good reasons. And so you walk out and say, yeah, I didn't expect that coming. I thought I was going to win that one. But uh, what can you do? Uh, I lost. And I the verdict wasn't that I was a second class citizen. 
the verdict was just that what I thought was on my side of the line was actually on the other guy's side of the line. And then you say the verdict wasn't that I was somebody else's property. The verdict wasn't that the judge or the police or my neighbors got to decide what I was for. They didn't get to decide I was a pawn and here's how they wanted to move me. And like, I'm a citizen and I have a say as much as they do. It's just that I didn't win this time. So that's the idea. And, th and then the other thing that the judge has in mind doesn't necessarily talk about in this case, but the judge says, I don't want to come up with a verdict that's going to paralyze everybody like these people going forward. I've got to come up with something simple and clear so that from now on, anytime a dispute like this starts to come up, either the lawyer or if things don't go well, the judge, somebody can say, yeah, you know, it's like that case between Dave and Chris back in 2023. It happened like this. It got the dispute was like this, just like you guys. It got resolved like this. So unless you can think of some powerful reason why you people should get a different decision, the fact is our society has good reason to think that this kind of dispute gets resolved in this kind of way. So you're going to lose this case too, pal, because, you know, it's like, well, I know society used to say that the red light means stop, but I think we should take, I'm colorblind, so I think we should change the meaning of red. And you say, no, 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 we're not going to change the color language of traffic signals every block or every town, like they're universal. And so you, you do that to keep things to keep the peace. And justice is all about that. It's all about people being able to come to avoid disputes, to resolve disputes if they get into disputes, and to have resolutions accessible to them that don't require someone to be deemed as having an inferior destination, somebody as being lower class. I like the traffic metaphor and how you mentioned that when we're managing traffic or when societies are figuring out how to manage traffic, the rules of the road rarely have anything to do, except for in, you know, maybe emergencies, occasional emergencies, the rules of the road rarely have anything to do with whose destination is superior, who has the more important place to get to. It's about following simple and transparent rules that everybody can understand and that the community can rely on and allow us to get on with our lives. Yeah. And where you can defer without having sacrificed status or something like that. You can say, hey, no, no, the reason I said ladies first is because I'm a gentleman. End of story. So you have some critical things to say about ideal theory, but it's not all critical. What, what do you think is a more defensible version of ideal theory or what is an ideal theory worth striving towards? Well, thank you. Uh, yes, I'm not against ideals. And so in a way, I'm not against ideal theory either. I just say... If we're going to talk about targets, let's talk about where real targets come from. So start by working from the bottom up, forget the peak, at least for starting. Uh, and instead, start with the problem, get clear on the problem in all its messy detail, which we don't really do. We wouldn't really do in a philosophy class. Like if somebody says something like, well, doesn't that depend upon the state of technology that people have for posting no trespassing signs? Or doesn't that assume that people have the technology for marking the perimeter of, of their pasture with barbed wires so that their livestock can't just walk through it? And you say, yeah, well, all the messy details count. 
Uh, and then you ask, what would be an ideal solution to this problem? So you're constraining yourself, uh, you know, giving yourself limits that make a problem, a question answerable, a problem tractable by supposing that, well, in order for something to be an ideal solution, at least it has to be an actual solution. And then if you have more than one actual solution, ask yourself, well, is one of these solutions the perfect thing? Is it, is it ideal? Is it to say, this is uh, what will leave us with not the slightest reason to wish for something different? So it's quite possible that nothing you could actually do, nothing that would actually address the problem would count as an ideal, would feel like an ideal, the feel of there being a perfect solution with no aspect left unsolved, no concern left unaddressed. You might come up with something that elegant, and that's the theory, uh, but you might not. So that has to be part of the theory too. So understanding messy facts, it has everything to do with understanding what's genuinely a solution and therefore possibly genuinely an ideal solution and what's just a daydream because it isn't a solution it's just wishing that we didn't have a problem hey everyone this is chris kaufman and i just want to let you know that each one of you are super special precious snowflakes that i appreciate to bits for listening to my show i love doing this show so much but it is still a small show and if you want to help me out a little bit i would greatly appreciate it if you would just recommend the show to a friend, maybe two friends, um, but every little bit counts, especially when you are a small, new and growing show as I am. So if you want to help me out, that is the simplest thing you can do. And I will not bug you any longer right now. Back to the show. You have a long discussion that I really liked about the dangers of setting aside details when trying to analyze what would be ideal for a community, what kind of moral rules or traffic management rules might be ideal because it's not always obvious that you're setting aside just a messy and distracting detail for the purpose of clarity and when you're accidentally setting aside details that are essential to the problem. Can you give some examples of that or talk about how we can avoid that danger, that pitfall when we're trying to simplify moral thinking to come up with an ideal? Well, sure. Just to talk about something that might seem relatively uh innocuous an example i've used several times is is uh, there was a time in tucson when the traffic jams were becoming a real problem especially in the rush hours like seven to nine in the morning the traffic would be just bottlenecked and uh, something like four to six in the uh, afternoon the the traffic would be at a standstill and one thing that was tried that the traffic managers tried was, so you might have, say, two lanes driving toward downtown, two lanes coming from downtown, and then there's a turn lane in the middle. So what they said is, in these rush hours, let's say there are no left turns. And instead of this middle lane being a, a left turn lane, that would just be a, a lane that was dedicated to going downtown during the morning rush hour and dedicated to coming out of downtown during the evening rush hour. So the idea is that, you know, when the time traffic is busiest, that's when instead of having two lanes going downtown, you'll have three lanes and, and from downtown. So theoretically, that's a good idea. And if somebody said that's a perfect way of 
handling the problem of somehow getting us an extra dimension of uh, traffic flow, the question would be, well, maybe that's an ideal solution, but not so fast. Is it an actual solution? And in that case, it turned out that it was no, because you said, well, people were really confused about the disappearance of the left lane, uh, and that was causing problems. And you might say, no, no, no. There are towns that have figured this out. Just give people a few days to learn how to do this. Well, trouble is that in Tucson, there's like thousands of new people show up every month, especially in the winter. There are all kinds of people who've never shown this. And maybe they're from some small town in Idaho or something like that. So they they may never even have seen a traffic light before, but they've never certainly never seen one become something that has no left turn lane in the middle of the day. That's that's not what they've seen. So uh, as a matter of fact, what happened quickly was that uh, these things became an occasion for uh, traffic jams and road rage and uh, and accidents that uh, people were furious at these people, snowbirds, they call them coming in and not and not knowing how to drive. So the traffic managers got it. They said, no, it's not a, an ideal solution. It's not a solution at all. And they rolled it back and, uh, and abandoned the experiment without anybody thinking it was necessarily a failure. It just it didn't work in Tucson. It might have worked other places. Uh, if you don't have a transient population, maybe it'll work. Uh, but Tucson is all about uh, handling transient traffic management. So, so that's an example of something that wasn't going to work. Uh, you know, something else, if we were on top of the ta- of a tall building and you said, yeah, if only I could fly. And uh, and I say, well, it's worth a try. And here we are standing on top of the building. And then the, the proper response to me, if I say something that irresponsible, you know, really irresponsible is to say, that's not an ideal. That's a daydream. It's not a solution to a problem. It's just wishing that there wasn't a problem of how to get from point A to point B when the traffic down below is heavy. So that's a relevant um, illustration. Like I talk about realistic idealism. There's got to be something that can make what you want to call ideal a realistic response to reality. Otherwise, it's just a daydream or a fantasy. Uh, I mentioned something else. Uh, you know, you think about a, having a dinner and people are coming over for dinner and you say, what can I make? What can I make? And you say, ah, my prize winning county fair lasagna. Perfect. That's what I'm going to do. I, there's no such thing as a person not loving that. Uh, the question is only, will, will I make enough to feed all the people? Because everybody will want a second helping. And then you see, oh, I don't have all the ingredients. Right now, that changes things. Now you and you still say, in some sense, you go into dinner tonight with whatever you make, uh, you know, your your other dish, your fallback plan, and you say, and everybody says, "This is great, I love it." And you say, "Yeah, yeah, thank you." But really, what you're thinking is the lasagna would have been ideal. Now, here's a distinction. I don't know exactly how much this amounts to, but I want to say. What I've got in my head or what the cook has in his head is is a difference between something that is ideal versus it would have been ideal. I could so I could say around dinner, like I'm sorry to just like 
somebody said, Dave, what's wrong? And I say, well, you know, I really wanted to make you a lasagna. That would have been ideal, but I just didn't have the ingredients. And they said, no, no, this is great. But so that's, everybody understands what that means. Lasagna would have been ideal. But if I say lasagna is ideal, even if it's not feasible, it is ideal. Then you say, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, didn't you use the wrong word? Maybe you're not an English speaker, but like is just isn't the right word. Would have been is the right way to describe it. So there's all kinds of nuance there that, in fact, our language captures pretty well, uh, but not our theory doesn't necessarily capture it. Our theory isn't as sophisticated as our language. So in the lasagna example you just gave, you might say it would have been ideal to make lasagna if only I had had the ingredients. And that's yeah. a pretty sensible thing to say. And the contingent fact that wasn't the case, you didn't have the ingredients it's pretty easy to imagine that you might have had the ingredients. But in the Tucson example you gave, it's kind of like, well, this would have been an ideal if strangers who had never seen these kinds of things could quickly learn these new traffic rules and these comprehension issues weren't there. Now, that's still coherent, but it's a much taller order. So is the point here that some hypothetical solutions aren't really worth thinking about or entertaining because the order is just too tall? I mean, that's actually not even that tall of an order compared to some other examples you give. But is that distinction relevant here? Well, yeah, I like the way you put it, Chris. And so what I want to say is tall is a kind of it's not a black and white kind of thing. It's a it's a matter of degree. So you say this is this is a tall tail or a tall solution. So I want to say that's actually quite accurate uh, as a way of describing what kind of problem we're facing as theorists. It's it's not that there's one thing that's right and one thing that's wrong. Rather, there are there are families of ways of trying to cope with the human condition, and some are better than others. Uh, and some are so good that you say, "Wow, that was elegant!" Like, how did like that's ideal, right? And uh, and you mean it's roughly perfect, but you could get more or less close to a perfect solution, or you could get more or less genocidally disastrous non-solution. And then you've got a lot of stuff uh, in between. Let's talk about Peter Singer and his shallow pond thought experiment, because here's, I think, an example where you have some criticisms of how he is constructing this ideal. So I guess to start with, can you walk us through shallow pond and how it's usually interpreted or how Singer intends it to be interpreted? Uh, yeah. So Peter Singer, one of his first articles early 1970s, he came up with an example that's like one of the best examples of the 20th century, uh, most uh, you know, shockingly provocative examples ever. And like all such examples, it's pretty simple. He says, you're walking by down the street and there's a wading pool that you're walking by and you notice that there's a young child drowning in that wading pool. And you say, I guess I have to save him. And you look down and you say, I am wearing a new pair of shoes that I just paid a lot of money for. Uh, and, uh, and if I get them wet, they'll never be the same. But the kid's drowning. There's no time to take them off. So I have to just walk in there and save the kid uh, or not. And so in effect, he says, is there any question here about uh, what you have to do? 
not what you should do, even not what you might do or would like to do, like what you have to do. And so he says, you know, it's really pretty simple. Like, first of all, if you'll allow me, suffering is bad or, you know, drowning is bad. And uh, hey, if if you don't agree with me, if you're going to be a skeptic and say, well, it's, so, drowning isn't necessarily bad, I can imagine a case in which drowning would be good. And you say, come on, suffering, bad or good, uh, bad or not bad. And so you say, okay, yeah, suffering's bad. So he says, look, are you with it or not? Like, are you going to be an idiotically clever philosopher? Or are you going to be, you know, have a shred of common sense to say, okay, Peter, you got it. You got me. Suffering is bad. And then he says, okay, so here's a second principle. Maybe it's a little bit more con- controversial, but if you can, if you can prevent the suffering or a drowning or somebody from starving to death without co- making like anything remotely comparable as a sacrifice in your own mind, doesn't have to be. You don't have to say it's a matter of pin, just in your own mind, if you're not making a comparable sacrifice, don't you have to do it? And so I, I think it's fair to say that Peter Singer's example, it was a game-changing example. Like it really changed the way a lot of people think, and not without reason, like it is, it is in fact a powerful example. And then he said, hey, did I say drowning? What if I had said starving? Does anything change if I say starving? Don't you have an obligation if you look if all it costs you, like it doesn't even cost you a $60 pair of shoes. It costs you five or $15 to save a starving person, to get a starving person through the malaria season or through a a drought, a a dehydration, something like that. Don't you have to do it? I think that article was probably the pinnacle of 20th century utilitarianism. It took it took utilitarianism to its logical conclusion. Now, I also there's oh there's so many other things we can say, but uh, but suffice it to say that Peter Singer and I are usually viewed as uh, on opposite sides of some practical debate, and uh, I, I'm sure he never he's never lost a a minute's sleep about that, and uh, I I have I've thought about it a lot, but I. Uh, but I don't want to take anything away from him. Like, I think he he got people thinking about something that was worth thinking about. I also think that in taking utilitarianism to its logical conclusion, though, that, in fact, it might be the greatest mistake in the history of philosophy or something like that. It might be. It's not a little mistake. It's not a little miscalculation or a little oversight. It's it's misunderstanding what philosophy is and maybe misunderstanding what utilitarianism was supposed to be, what it was in the 1700s, and then it it went in a different direction in the 1800s and then became that in the 20th century. So I guess I want to say if utilitarianism was going to be about consequences, like that's not about consequences, that's about guilt. So like the basic answer is, did you say that uh, starving kid? Uh, yeah, five minutes ago. So what do you what do you need to do now about the next starving kid? And you say, yeah, I just saved the starving kid. And you say, that's that's not the point. What you did five minutes ago, it's not the point. Uh, the point is, do you still have another five dollars in your pocket? You've got to keep saving 
people who are drowning in effect until you would drown yourself if you did one more thing. And he says, yeah, that's a pretty radical interpretation. That's also the one that I think is the the correct interpretation. That's what he said in the 70s. He doesn't say that anymore. And I think that's really interesting. I think he's moved towards something that's much closer to my view. I, I, I don't suppose it's because of anything I've said, but but it's much closer to my view. It's much more realistic. It's much more like what you would say if you cared about consequences. It's not about what to do. It's about what works. Completely different ideas about what theory is for. So that's why I'd say biggest mistake ever is to say somehow in the the 20th century is the climax of our forgetting what a moral theory is for. So I asked Singer in 2013, I said, if you were writing that article uh, again, I don't have that recording anymore. It was some like floppy disk or something like that. So I don't even know where it is, but it was recorded at the time anyway. Uh, but I said, if, you, if you're writing that article today, would you change anything? And you'd say, well, yeah, I'd, I'd update date the examples, I guess. And I'd say, oh, yeah, all right. Here's the thing, though. You get all kinds of people writing articles that say, if you think donating one kidney is enough to make you not damnable and that you ought to give the other other kidney and use any money you have left to put yourself on dialysis to minimize the suffering. And I said, you know, real case, of course, like these, these things have actually happened. And so people will say, yeah, I think you should give away everything to a point where the pain you relieve wouldn't be as bad as the pain you cause yourself or your loved ones by giving one more dollar. I said, you know, these people say that you inspired them. Are you okay with that? And he said, well, Let's go back to the previous question and let me say something else. And he actually went on to write a couple of books on this, like The Life You Save, where to me, this is serious, messy, inconclusive, grown-up moral philosophy, where he says, and what he said to me at the time is he said, hey, here's a proposal. If you want to live a good life, try looking at the problems in the world and taking 1% of your income and throw that 1% at a big problem, a big like suffering, a human suffering problem, throw it at relieving suffering in a way that you have done enough research that you know will work to a point. Like it, so this could be with a, you know, a neighborhood homelessness program, could be with uh, United Way or Oxfam or something like that, but it could be something small, it could be something closer to home where you know that that family really needs the money and needs it a hundred times more than you do. And so you just come along and say, hey, uh, don't worry about that. I got you this week. Just just let me handle this for you. Uh, no, we're not going to have any kind of detailed groveling and gratitude. Just, uh, just let me take care of this and have, we'll be done with it. So you do this. And Peter Singer says he has a prediction that if you throw 1% of your income at what you deem to be a worthy cause at the end of the year, you will say, well, how was that year? And you'll say, well, I'll tell you one thing. Is that money I gave to that charity? That was a good thing to do. I feel really good about that. And my kids feel really good about that. And he said, as long as that feels good, keep giving 1%. Or, he says, try 2%, maybe 3%, maybe 10%. You know, Mormons give 10% and that doesn't make them unhappy. So try that. 
And then he says, at some point, you maybe are giving away something and your kids say, whoa, dad, was that my college tuition you just gave away? And you say, is that okay? And they say, not really. If I don't get a college education, what am I going to be giving down the road? And so Peter Singer says, give to the point where like you're just you unequivocally feel that you're doing something that makes your life more worth living, that makes your life more fun. And then he says, and when you feel yourself passing that point, just stop or throttle back, whatever, throttle back to a place where uh, where your kids think, this is really cool, dad, let's keep doing this. So that's what he says now. But that's what he said in 2013. And he said that in a couple of books. And I think that's a revolution. Like that's not 1972 utilitarianism anymore. That's not utilitarian recipe, you know, simple idiot proof recipe for not feeling guilty about not having given enough. That now you're talking about what what works and what to do. Now, so you could say you could carry you could keep on going with the argument. You could say, okay, so Singer, now he's still an old time utilitarian, 20th century utilitarianism. It's just that he's not trying to ask you to maximize utility. He's asking himself to maximize utility. And he says, hey, you know. When I asked Chris to give uh, to the point of marginal utility, like basically everything he owns, he nodded his head and said, good idea. And then he didn't do it. When I asked him to give 2%, he gave three. So like, there's no question about like, what's the right thing to ask Chris? You asked him to give 2%. You might toy around with three or four, but you don't ask him to uh, put himself at the, at the point of agony. So you could say uh, that's what... Peter Singer is doing. He's strategically thinking about what words should be coming out of his mouth in order for his words to maximize utility. And I would just say, well, yeah, it could be that he's being strategic and that in fact, he's not serious about what he's saying. But I would say, like, first of all, I don't think you're complimenting him if you say that about him. I think you pay someone the compliment of believing that they really mean what they're saying. And I would say moral philosophy, if there's a standard for philosophy, it's about trying to get at the truth. It's not trying to get at maximum influence. It's trying to make your maximally close pass at the star of truth. Uh, So I think the most charitable way to interpret Singer is to say he realized that, you know, what to do isn't the question that he cares about. The question he cares about is what works. So that's to say he's a he's not a 20th century utilitarian. He's he's rediscovered 18th century utilitarianism or what they called utilitarianism anyway. What Hume and uh, Adam Smith were talking about when they were trying to figure out how you would decide whether to call something right. You call something right by looking at, well, is it useful? Do people find it useful? Do people find it agreeable? So they had a, they were after a different thing. And they get called proto-utilitarians, but they were, they were actually, for them, their moral theorizing, it wasn't even on the same topic. It wasn't about what to do at all. It was about what is it that makes a society famine-proof, what works. So now yeah. Peter Singer is working on what makes a society famine-proof. Yeah, I like that. I forget how you word it, 
something to the effect of, you know, one one question is, what can I do to relieve famine? And one question is, what makes it so that some societies become famine proof, which they have. You also have a phrase I wanted to ask you about this distinction about utilitarianism that you're drawing. You talk about the distinction between seeing utilitarianism as a decision procedure, as some kind of theory that tells you what to do versus seeing it as a project of investigating what works, what makes people happy, what makes society successful, etc. And you say yeah. something along the lines of when you see it that way, it's not about telling you what to do. It's about telling you what to respect. What, what do you mean by that? Do you mean like telling you what to admire or telling you or, or the fact that some system works is reason to go along with it and abide by it? Well, I guess to me, I want to say morality is you can look at it as being more than one thing, and you can look at it as maybe it's a personal challenge. One aspect of it is, I call it the personal strand, which is a question of what you have to do to make your life as, as meaningful, as rewarding as you can. But then there's a different piece of it, which you don't try to derive it from that interest. It's a different thing, which is, the morality of your community, the person, the social strand of your morality, where then you say something like it's it's the common good that we're talking about. Now, if there's a something that I've done there that's innovative and not necessarily right, that's controversial and uh, maybe even hard to understand, is I say it's not true that our social morality is a bottomless pit. It's, it doesn't demand everything from it. It doesn't overwhelm us. It isn't the thing that's drowning us. Rather, it's traffic management. That's where like there are rules. So you say, hey, in my community, when the light turns yellow, the way I show respect to my community is to slow down, to ask myself, am I going to get through the yellow? And if the light turns red, then the way I respect my community is definitely to stop. Uh, there are all kinds of things about my destination where I'd say, that's not right. I, sh I shouldn't be aiming at that. But a lot of it is to say, what is it that people are doing that makes them appreciate each other as neighbors? Rather than wanting to live farther apart, they want to live closer together. You know, what makes people want to, like you could live in Nebraska and instead you move to New York City where you'll, you know, you're a uh, you know, $1,000 a month will buy, you know, whatever, an eighth as much, as much square footage. So you'll crowd ahead. You'll have noisy people below you, noisy people underneath you, noisy people to each side. And then when you walk out, it'll be even noisier. What is it that would make, one, make a person want to live like that? And the answer is, well, there are places like New York City that are extremely dense concentrations of human capital, of human productivity. Of, of human specialization and human excellence. And you say, hey, yeah, that person's really noisy, but somebody like him is my employer. Somebody like him is my best customer, et cetera, et cetera. So this is where I go if I want my specialization to be maximally valuable to the people who are interested in buying the kind of service I provide. So that's that's more the social side of morality and i so one thing i feel like i one thing i have to do that makes it really tricky is i re have to represent the social side of morality as not a bottomless pit not suffocating but in fact the thing that enables us to be better off together than apart 
So I put those things together and then I say there's this uneasy interface between them. But part of the interface is this thing that I started out the personal side saying, okay, when I go home at night, what is my personal interest? My personal interest is being able to say, oh, yeah, and then that customer came in and the customer said this, I insist, I won't go out. And I said, no, try a free sample of this other thing. And by the time he walked out with my free sample, he had even he had forgot that he even wanted this other thing because what I gave him was so much better. And I'm regaling people with this story about how cool my life is. And you say, well, what was cool about it? Other people really wanted my product. Other people were really, they really, when they came to me, they, they th- thank God I came to you. Uh, I, you know, I came to the right place. You know, my, I want you to, my children are grateful to you. My family is, that's what it's like to be living a great life is to say, when my community needed me to be a hero, I was there. Or when my com- community needed me to stay out of the way, I did. When my community needed me to step up and say something, I did. Right. So these are these are the things that are the core of our self-interest. Not it's not these things don't correct self-interest. They give the self-interest its content. Like I'm just something that if I look in the mirror, I don't make any sense until I can start telling myself, okay, these are the things I say to people where they bank on what I said being true. And when I go home, I can say they will never regret believing me. I will never have anything to hide. That's the best life is a life that you live where you said, I, uh, people didn't always agree with me, but I never, I, I was never ashamed of what I did. I, I never had to hide. Uh, like I never had to hope my kids wouldn't find out what I actually did for a living, that kind of thing. I find it useful to think of there's, there being as two strands of this, but they, they give each other content, right? In a way. And that like the, the more collective, the more common good side of morality, same thing, right? It will say, yeah, you want to live in a society in which these people learn to depend on each other. I want to make it safe for my neighbors to trust each other and to trust me. And then maybe beyond that, uh, like you say, I want to make it safe for my neighbors to take a risk, not with other people's money, but maybe, but with their own money. I want them to be able to say, uh, I'm just going to wing it. I'm just going to develop this. I, I think my barbecue sauce uh, or or my partner's barbecue sauce is so much better than anything out on the market. I'm going to throw everything I've got at producing it in wholesaleable batches, and I'm going to I'm going to try to make a living doing this. And so, you want to live in a society where people can afford to take a shot with their best idea say, give me the bat. I'm going to swing for the fences. Uh, The safe thing to do here is bunt. I think I can hit it over the fences though. And if I don't, I'm not going to die. My kids aren't going to die. I might go bankrupt. I might lose my business, but I won't die. I'll just have to dust myself off and give it another shot. So you want want to live in a society that's forgiving and you want your, your rule of law to be forgiving uh, right where where it's possible to make a mistake and survive the mistake and start over and do better next time, having learned something from the experience. So a lot of this depends on, like you said, the rule of law and relatively stable and secure property rights. How flexible do you think property rights can be and still be recognizably property rights or recognizably in the classical liberal tradition? 
I, you know, I, there are different ideas on what property rights are and how they're justified and how flexible they can be. At some point, I have to imagine you just say, well, that's that's not properly considered a property right anymore. But do you have a view on how they can be justified and how flexible they can be? Yeah, I have a, I have a view. And again, like a, my my view is uh, there isn't just uh, it isn't like there's a, a classical liberal versus some um, conservative tradition or socialist tradition. It's more complicated than that. So so one way of understanding the core of Western liberalism, though, is is like this. It's to say at the at the heart of liberalism is the idea that everyone has their own life to live, which was literally life and death back in the 1500s, right? So one of Western liberalism's or Western civilization's greatest achievements is reconceiving religion, your religion, as not a reason to kill you, right? To say, Chris, is he like a Christian or what? And you say, Eh, yeah, it's not our business. Like I'm looking at, yeah, who cares? Not my business. He seems like a fine guy, though. And so you say, yeah, but if he's a heathen, aren't we obliged to kill him or go to hell, uh, everlasting hell ourselves? And you say, no, just don't go there, right? So that's a great achievement when your religion becomes not no longer a reason to kill you. So, but the 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 more general idea caught on, not just freedom of religion. But the idea of everyone having their own life to live, each person has a right to say no, and each person has a duty to treat other people as if no means no. And so the idea of a property right is pretty closely related to that. It's maybe a generalization of that. A property right is a community's decision to see a particular line in a particular place, uh, a line that can't be crossed without permission of the owner. So I'm talking about the hardcore, non-flexible idea here. If there are lines that can't be crossed without permission, then those lines give identifiable content to the idea of a person minding her own business and having a right to be left alone to mind her own business so long as she stays on her side of the line. So that's, that's the absolute core. But actually, serious, real-world, surviving robust property rights have always been pretty flexible in some ways. There has to be some sense of what counts as a normal case where no means no in a pretty close to absolute sense. But you can't afford to treat no as meaning absolutely not unless you have a a sense of the difference between normal everyday cases and a moment of existentialist crisis. Because if you have a crisis, then the point is not to pretend that things are normal, but to get back to normal. Right. So historically, every robust regime of property rights is a, has something like a doctrine of necessity. Right. Like if you're lost in the woods and you find a cabin uh, and it looks like it's got a fireplace or some heat and you're going to die if you don't break in. Do you get to break in even if there's a no pre- trespassing sign there? And the answer is, yeah, you do. You do get to break in. You do get to save yourself because that's an existentialist crisis. That's an emergency. Now. It doesn't mean that the property rights go away. It isn't that, you know, after it's all, you know, after the they they save you and uh the property owner says, "Yeah, I'm uh I'm glad my cabin was there in your in your moment of need." And you say, "Yeah, and isn't it great that I don't have to pay you anything? That's uh, isn't it great that I don't owe you anything?" And the cabin owner says, "Oh, well, do we need to talk about that some more?" Uh, well, that's not what should happen. Uh, what should happen is the person who who broke in should say, 
I hope you'll forgive me. I know I saw the no trespassing sign, but I did it to save my life. How much is it going to cost for me to make you whole? You know, there's a tort now. It's not a it's not a crime. It's a tort. It's like there was no criminal intent. There was just a guy trying to save himself. And so now what the property owner has to say, oh, that was my property. You did trespass. And the proper solution to this problem isn't that I testify and get you put in jail. The proper solution is that we I say, oh, no, no, no. Look, you, you didn't mean it. You did you did the best you could. I'm glad you broke in. It's all good. And the guy says, So does that mean like a thousand bucks? I say, Yeah, a thousand bucks will call it. That's how it's supposed to work. It's a doctrine of necessity and serious property rights regimes, they all have something like this. Every robust regime of property rights has something like an eminent domain clause, right? So where you say, uh, yeah, my well isn't for sale. And then you know, people say, yeah, hang on. That was true in the normal case. But the fact is, everybody else as well is pumping salt water. Something happened. You're the only source of fresh water left. You're, you're part of the aquifer is the only one that didn't get crushed in this flood or something like that. So yeah, uh, you can't ask us to roll over and die. This is a little bit like the doctrine of necessity. We need your water. We don't need to not compensate you. We are going to compensate you. So that's, you know, the says the government shan't, won't take private property without fair compensation. So there's clauses like that in every serious property regime. You could consider something like adverse possession. I don't know if that means anything to you, but basically you have a right to say no Squatting, trespassing. Right? Yeah, you have a right to say no trespassing. You have a right to evict trespassers. But what if it's an accident? Say, what if, okay, um, my property line is actually half a mile that way, but a quarter mile that way, I put up a no trespassing sign. And then a new settler came in and say, okay, I guess I'm not supposed to trespass. If I do, I'm basically declaring war on Dave, so I'm not going to cross that line. But you know, I'll, I'll, I'll build a cabin and plant a crop just on, on, on my side of the no trespassing sign. And then I come along after uh, two years and I say, yeah, the house is finished. And so I say, yeah, gotcha. My uh, property line is actually out here. You're, you're trespassing, so you have to get off. In that case, the guy goes to court and says, uh, that was an accident. And uh, I guess I'm not the proper owner. But is he? Like a proper owner isn't somebody who fools somebody into trespassing. You don't lure somebody into trespassing. So so the idea of adverse possession, according to Carol Rose, who was one of my mentors here uh, when we were colleagues at Yale and she was teaching in the law school, her and Robert Ellickson, I learned enormous, like I learned I learned how to be a philosopher uh, in a way that I was, I was never going to learn that from philosophers uh, as good as my philosophy teachers were. But what Carol Rose says is, Part of the responsibility that goes hand in hand with your property right is a responsibility to police the borders properly. You've got to monitor the borders. And if somebody accidentally trespasses, you've got to go up to them and you've got to say, yeah, before you start digging a well there, pal, you're on my property. So don't even think about it. Uh, my property line ends there. And uh, that's the problem. And, you know, you have real cases where people have misunderstood where their property line was. And they find out years later that the neighbor built 
a garage on on the other on the other neighbor's property, and neither of them knew. But then they find out, and it's like now there's a fight. Well, that's what that's what property is like in the real world. Is it's a solution to a problem, and the problem is how to enable neighbors to be neighbors. What is it that you can be in close proximity to a person and you can still trust them? to understand what it is for you to mind your own business and for them to put a pretty high value on leaving you alone to mind your own business so long as you let them mind theirs. So that's what a property system is for. Now, when it stops working, when the world conspires to make it impossible for people to be neighbors, when all there is left to do is grasp at straws, well, then property rights start to go down the tube. But even in normal cases, there's a lot of flexibility there, right? To say, I need to get down to the shore uh, to get to my boat and point A to point B. And so in England, you might say, hey, you get to hop the fence to get down to the public beach. You just do. In um, North American land, that's not true. In North American land, instead, there are easements you have to, you have to not turn your several property rights into a blockade. You have to leave a corridor between your uh, land and your neighbor's land that can be turned into an alley or a roadway or something like that so that the traffic of a community can operate smoothly and people can get to where they have things to offer each other, the marketplace. All of those complexities, you know, is it classical liberal? And you say, well, it may not be toy classical liberal, but it is real world classical liberal. There has to be a lot of flexibility based into, built into the concept of we're not enemies. We're not going to become enemies. We're going to figure out how to live together. We're going to figure out how to be good for each other. Not only are we going to not get into traffic jams and not get into accidents, we're going to be people who we're better off because other people are getting to their destination. Do you consider this book to be a culmination of a lot of your other work or of a career? Uh, thank you for asking. Yes, I suppose I do. It depends on what day you ask me. But if you're <laughs> asking me tonight, I guess I'm thinking, and I've thought it before, that I think of myself as having worked on a lot of different stuff, a lot of different topics over my career. But in a way, it was all about this. So if you say culmination, that's a good word for how I mostly feel about it. I I can't feel like that unreservedly because if I thought like I thought, yeah, if I thought it was the ideal book, if I thought I'd said everything I had to say and I, I said it exactly the way I wanted to say it, well, then maybe I'd be more comfortable with call, calling it a culmination. But uh, but I guess I guess I do think uh, as I look back on everything I've done, it, it was it was it's been pointing at this for a long time. I ask because there's a point in the final section where you where you talk about drawing together the threads of this book and of your career. And I've been indirectly familiar with some, some of your work for a while, but this is this is the first book that I've read of yours, and I enjoyed it immensely and plan to follow up. And I'm partially just curious for, for my own reading list what other works of yours this builds on the most. Well, yeah, thank you for asking. I'm, uh, I'm honored and flattered. Uh, what other books? Uh, Jason Brennan and I did a book in 2010 called A Brief History of Liberty. And Jay and I had a lot of fun writing that book. So I think of that as having been uh, 
in one way a setup for this, a step in this direction. Jason is primarily how I became aware of your work. Well, kudos to Jay then. I will uh, I will thank him for for that. But yeah, he's um I've had uh some great colleagues, great students, uh none better than Jay. I guess I'd also say that a book I wrote in 2005, it was called Elements of Justice. It's a continuation of that as well. And I wrote a book about moral theory in 1995 that was called Rational Choice and Moral Agency. So there's a lot of threads in there uh, that are being pulled together as well in this book. In fact, there's um, uh, I actually had a manuscript on how much of a substantive morality could be pulled out of, not, not had to be pulled out of instrumental rationality, but could. Interestingly, you, you know, the resources that instrumental rationality has for substantive conclusions are, are I thought, really striking. I wrote, uh, I wrote a manuscript then and initially had some trouble publishing it. And then just the way my career was going, I, I felt that the smartest thing for me to do was to set it aside, but then came back to it years later and thought, no, this actually needs to be part of a book. And so it was part of of this one. So the very oldest written part of this book was part six, I think. And that's um, getting to be like 25 years old. And this is the part where you're talking about how, you know, rational choice theory and instrumental means ends kind of reasoning can lead to a morality that transcends yeah. know, the limits of means yeah. ends reasoning. Well, yeah, thank you for remembering the key word. So it's about, uh, you know, maturing as a child, and getting to a point of saying, well, here's, there's a couple of things going on. First of all, my cognitive capacity is exploding. And there was a time when all I wanted was milk. And then there was a time when you know I became more sophisticated. I started wanting hamburgers. Uh, then I became more sophisticated and I started wanting friends. And then I became way more sophisticated and decided that I wanted to deserve having friends. And that's when things became really complicated. And that's when I had to aim not at what to get, but at what to be. Not even just getting friends, but being someone who deserves other people's trust and loyalty and admiration. Uh, and so that became the thing that I had to do in order not to die of boredom, not to, not to look at myself and say, there's nothing there. It's like, why am I looking in the mirror? There's nothing to see here. But where instead I, I had to start reconstructing myself as a person uh, with a noble cause. Like as a person, like I'm saying, no, I'm writing a novel here. I'm not, I'm not like an accidental bit player in this novel I'm writing. Like, what's the point of writing a novel like that? I want to be the hero. And then you say, yeah, it's not safe being a hero. Well, it's not safe being a coward either. You know, heroes don't live forever, and neither do cowards. So at some point you say, I want to go home at night thinking I live the day of an admirable person. So that's the idea. And you got all of that out of instrumentalism. Like you got all of that out of saying uh, that I need to have something to suck up my extra bandwidth here because it just turns out to be too easy to put food on the table. Like it's not good enough 
uh, like I've got to want something more than that. I've got to find something in my life that isn't easy. I've got to find something that makes it an interesting challenge. I got to some. I got to find a life that that's worth writing a book about. I like to ask authors to recommend works by other authors that they think would complement theirs. I'm, I was wondering if you have something you'd like to recommend that complements living together. But I'm wondering if you could give a recommendation that's maybe older, something pre-1800 and something more contemporary, whether it fits in very nicely with this book or it's just something you'd like to recommend. Yeah, well, everybody knows uh, that Aristotle was great. So yeah, uh, Nicomachean Ethics, it is a a genuinely great book and a a book of genuine wisdom. Uh, And I would say not everybody loves Immanuel Kant. Uh, and I don't think he's right about a lot of things, but tremendously brilliant, not so much of a great writer, uh, a little bit tongue-tied and a little bit self-absorbed, but but still had great ideas. David Hume, a great writer, uh, and in fact, as famous as Hume was, he's still underrated. He was a genuinely revolutionary in intelligence, he, a genuine game-changer. T- uh, Adam Smith is not even remembered as a philosopher, really, but he is, I'm not sure he's quite in the league of, say, Aristotle or David Hume, but he's very close. And his moral psychology is astoundingly sophisticated. Even today, it's not like antiquarian interest. It's, uh, he, if he wrote, if he were writing that book today, people would say this is a real advance. Uh, So yeah, Theory of Moral Sentiments, fabulous book. Uh, Wealth of Nations, not my favorite of the two books, actually, but still a fabulous book. And stunningly insightful book uh, that, you know, literally centuries, people are still winning Nobel Prizes. And in their acceptance speeches, they're saying, yeah, yeah, now that I have more time I started reading some Adam Smith in there, my idea was you're giving me this prize for something that's right there in Adam Smith. Like winner after winner says that. Uh, I guess I could stop there with the uh, with the old time uh, stuff. Uh, well, before, lot- before you do, do you want to say uh, specifically, is there a specific work from Kant or Hume that you would recommend or just their corpus of work broadly? Well, with Kant, with some trepidation, uh, I guess I would say the the moral anthropology, which isn't exactly the name of a book, but I would say not the groundwork, but the books he goes on to write a few years later, and in particular the moral anthropology, where he he talks not as if morality is is to be grounded on something like geometry and necessity and truisms that can't possibly be false, uh, no matter what human circumstances are. I don't buy any of that really, but uh, but his his moral anthropology he talks all about rationality uh, in a pretty sophisticated sense. He talks about the obligation not only to be rational, but to do things to maintain and practice and augment our rationality. That to me is really interesting. Uh, David Hume, I've I've got to say, uh, treatise of human nature. Uh, but Hume himself liked his two inquiries better, and they're not—they're simpler. Um, I think not as fruitful, not as interesting, 
but in a way they get to their point. Their point is more perspicuously made and <clears throat> Hume thought they were better. So I would go with his inquiries and then he's got some essays as well, but yeah, treatise of human nature would be, would be the way to go. And for something more contemporary? I would say uh, uh, anything by uh, Jay Brennan, anything by Chris Fryman, anything by Matt Swalinski. Matt recommended your Elements of Justice to me when I had him on the show. I appreciate that. Uh, I would say uh, anything by Jim Otteson, uh, his work on Adam Smith, uh, but especially his book, Honorable Business. I would say anything by Deirdre McCloskey, uh, but especially the uh, bourgeois uh, bourgeois virtues. I just had her on to talk about that trilogy. She was a delight to talk to. And honorable business, I'll, I'll have to put that on my list as well. I only recently discovered Jim Otteson and fell in love with him. I've only read two of his books now, but I loved them both. So I'll have to check that one out. Yeah, you you will uh, you will enjoy that book. It's um, it's a, a tour de force. It it treats business ethics as a deeply philosophical exercise. So it, it's about, it's not about business. It, I mean, it is about business, but it's about honor. So it's a, it's a book that Aristotle might have written about business and, and here's the way to do it right. It's a, how Adam Smith, what he might've written about business ethics. And Jim is, is trying to uh, both of those using both of those as, as models for his own writing. He's, he's trying to say, what it would be like to treat business ethics, not just as the search for a, a list, a code that can secure you against blame, but to think of principles of self-guidance that even if no one ever discovers that you followed those principles, your knowing that you followed those principles with honor is what will make you proud of yourself. And that pride will carry you through anything. Do you have any future projects you'd like to plug? Thank you for asking. I do. Uh, I am now that I'm at West Virginia and I'm in a business college and I'm not otherwise tied down. I don't even particularly have a job description, uh, but I want to. But there is something here called the Purpose Institute. Not that I'm not part of that either, but uh, but I, I want to write a book on purpose and, and I want to write a book then that is comes at both at the philosophy just to say what's the difference between having a purpose and not having one what is it that makes it uh say tremendously disturbing and disappointing thing to not have a purpose and what makes it such a tremendously rewarding thing to be in the flow as chicks and mahai would have put it uh, to have to have, a, to have a, a North Star to say, I've got a compass. I know where I'm heading and I know why. And I know what's going to rip me out of bed tomorrow morning and say, I've got to get back to this because I can't waste this day because my destination is too important. So purpose from that perspective, but also something where if you're a business, you get together every now and then and say, Okay, so how do we look uh, this latest quarter? What's our balance sheet look like? And then you say, yeah, okay, fine. Uh, we our cash flow is is uh, keeping us solvent, but uh, but you know it's not where it could be. What are we doing this for? Like, what's the point? Like, is is making this much money? Does that answer all our questions? And you say, no, no. The reason we got into this 
is because we wanted our hiking gear or our shoes or whatever it was, our, our avocados to be the best, to be the industry standard. We wanted people to look at us and say, just back off. It's just like, those are the people you go to. You don't need to think about it anymore. Like those are the people you want to do business. That's what we wanted to do. Did we do it? You look at our cash flow and well, it looks okay. But so anyway, the uh, fundamentally looking at the purpose of business, which is my, what you might find uh, Jim Otteson doing and saying, don't, don't lose sight of the fact that you, you didn't just want to make a lot of money. You wanted people to admire you as being like the best there is at what you do. And you want their admiration to not be a case of mistaken identity. You want to say, I didn't need any marketing gimmick to fool people into thinking that I had right a blood test for this. You know, like you don't want that. Like that's not going to end well. Even if you never get caught, it's not going to end well. So that's the point. The point is to say, what I want to happen at the end of the day is for my kids to look at me and say, you really don't have anything to hide, do you? You really did do it right. Every dollar that ever passed through your hand, it was it was in the right place when it passed through your hand. It was where it was supposed to be. And like if that's, you know, if that's the way you are when you die, it won't matter whether you die with a lot of money or a little, uh, because you will die happy. So that that's the idea of uh you know, I guess really Jim's book, Honorable Business, but that's also the idea of, uh, you can ask Jim about that, but it's it's also the idea of the purpose book is to bring together the idea that the ultimate purpose of a business is to arrange for itself to be staffed with mission-driven people who say, this isn't about getting pay raises, this is about winning championships. Do you have a rough time frame for this this work? It's still in the early, early phases, I'm guessing. Well, I am going out to Georgetown this fall uh, to be with uh, Jay Brennan and John Hasness and a, a couple of other friends. And this is a, a time for me to, you know, get past the other things that I've been doing uh, and and get really focused on this book. So I think I might have a draft as early as the end of the year. Might take another 10 years to really be done with it, but I uh but I I want to have it um I want to have a draft pretty soon within within a year, maybe even within 6 months. I'll look forward to that. Where can people find you if they want to keep up with your ongoing projects? Well, I would say my name has a really unusual spelling. So if you just if you just type my even type my last name into uh into a search engine, if you spell it correctly, the first 30 odd things that will come up will be uh, related to me. And on the first page will be my website. So, so I guess the, um, you know, one thing that'll come up is the West Virginia University, Chambers College of Business and Economics, uh, Department of General Business. So, so you'd find my name there. So there's, uh, uh, you, yeah, I mean, and you, I mean, you'd find my uh, email there so yeah i will be able to retrieve email from that address anytime and and yeah i'd be uh, i'd be happy to uh, to correspond with people thanks for thanks for asking of course my guest today has been david schmitz and his book once again is living together inventing moral science david thanks so much for joining me on ideas having sex your questions were spectacularly good i really appreciate it thank you chris 
Thank you for listening to Ideas Having Sex, where we have stimulating conversations on social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you're a fan of what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.